Well, we are looking big picture at the church, the glorious body of Christ. We've narrowed that down into looking at the purpose of the church. This is like week four on the pop quiz. What's the purpose of the church? Hopefully you can get it by now or else we're really going to be teachers going to fill Triple E, there you go. Is that fucking Triple E? It's Triple E with one overarching purpose. Exalt, equip, evangelize. All for the purpose of glorifying God. And we're on that second one, if you put it in the exalt, edify, evangelize. And we said last week that edification is really the two-part process. The second part of what? Yes, discipleship. Because the command is, Go therefore into all the nations, making disciples... And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So it's not just getting them saved, evangelism, but then our mission is also to edify them. It's not just to edify. Okay, we're in the church where we build people up. We'll let the other churches get them saved. No, every church is supposed to be about exaltation, edification, and evangelization. And so last week we basically answered two questions, or at least they were answered in my mind, hopefully yours as well. Um, first, we said, what is edifying? And we said that the goal of edification is to present every man complete in Christ. That was Paul's statement in Colossians 1, 28. Another way of saying that is you could kind of, if you like to expand it, we want three things. People to obey, act like Christ. We want them to think like Christ and to know Christ. So not just one of those, all three. And we noted that that's for everyone, not just like an elite group that Paul has. Well, those are the super saints. They're going to grow, but the rest of Christians, they're just kind of, you know, they're saved. No, every Christian's to be complete or mature in Christ. And then second, we said, answered, who edifies? And we noted that the same words Paul used for his ministry in Colossians 1.28 were used for everyone's ministry in Colossians 3.16. And then we turn to Ephesians 4.11-12 where it talks about how God gives leaders, teachers in the church to train the saints so that they could do the work of ministry. And so we said that the goal, the New Testament model, is that every single person is called to edify or to ministry. And then we ended this by looking at 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the body and refers to the church, and noted that everyone matters, no one can live without the rest, and that there is structure. And today I want to Begin by reading a little portion out of this book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, by Paul Tripp. He says, Sam called me in a panic. It had been an ordinary day. Get up, go to work, and do his job until quitting time. But as he was rushing home, he was approached by a desperate man. The man said that his life was a mess. He didn't even know where he was going to sleep that night. Sam could tell that he wasn't a seasoned street person. Hoping to be a conduit of help, Sam took him home and called his pastor, me. Paul, he said, I came across this guy who lost his job, had a terrible fight with his wife, and was thrown out on the street. I thought I'd bring him over to your house, so now you can help give him the help he needs. Is now okay? Before Sam could say anything else, I responded, Isn't God's love amazing? God cares about this man and put one of his children in his path. God cares about you and has given you an opportunity to be an instrument in his hands. I'm persuaded, only Paul Tripp can talk like this, by the way. I'm persuaded that God never gets a wrong address, and He intends to use you in this man's life. Let me pray for you right now, that God will fill your heart with His love and your mind with wisdom. When I finished praying, Sam said, But I don't think I'm able. 
Uh, Paul Tripp interrupted. I'll continue to pray for you tonight. I'll call you in the morning. I'm so encouraged by your ministry to this man. I said goodbye and hung up the phone. For the next several weeks, I stood alongside Sam, determined not to take over for him as he learned how to love his desperate friend. He learned how to be a tool God could use to encourage change in someone's life. In the process, God changed Sam and his wife in some significant ways as well. I had pushed Sam out of the nest, but not because he lacked compassion. His problem was that he lacked courage. Sam had assumed that whatever this man needed was way beyond what he could offer. He didn't see himself as one of God's instruments, only as one of God's conduits, a passive channel connecting one thing to another. An instrument is a tool that is actively used to change something, and God has called all of his people to be instruments of change in his redemptive hands. Embedded in the larger story of redemption is a principle we must not miss. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary or extraordinary things in the lives of others. What mission board, what ministry, what local church would use the people God used in Scripture? There was Moses, an exiled murderer. Murder, murderer. Gideon, fearful and hiding. David, the shepherd boy with no military training. Peter, who publicly denied Christ. And Paul, persecutor of the church, to name a few. Along with these are untold numbers of little people used in big ways to fulfill his plan on earth. God never intended us to, be sim- to simply be the objects of his love. We are called to be instruments of that love in the lives of others. So what would be your thoughts if you're on the other line with Paul Tripp? And he prayed for you and then basically hung up. Okay. What was his point both with his words and his actions? It's your responsibility. You do it. That you always intend more to, to take on the shepherding of that man than the one who called him. Okay. Yeah, and God's put us all in various places. For us, now that I don't think the point is not that we could never come across a situation where we go, they've been through so much that I just do not know where to start. You know, there is time, and I know Paul Tripp would agree with this, there is time for professional counselors or to get help beyond, you know, maybe what you can provide. But I think by and large, he's pushing us to see that there is this call that we are all to edify. And so I thought that tied in nicely. But when do we do this is the question. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 14. And Corbin, could you read that for us when you get there? Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 14. And you have lots of space for notes. So here, these verses are showing that there's this danger of falling away like the Israelites did in the wilderness. And that didn't end just because Christ came. Now, in the context, we see that fall away means to go from trusting and obeying God, in other words, worshiping Him, to trusting and obeying something else. Now, falling away can be quick. Or it can be like weeds that one day you look out and you've got them all gone. And the next day you go out and 
Seems like they've overtaken the garden. Uh, they can be almost imperceptible how they grow. And here he describes it beginning with an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, we're not going to look through all the book of Hebrews, but the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior to all things. And so the point is the unbelieving heart is saying Jesus isn't superior to all. Now, that's important to realize because the Israelites did not go from, you know what, we think God exists. Oh, wait, you know what, we no longer think we're atheists now. God doesn't exist. That's not their unbelief. Their unbelief is not in God's existence, but that God is the best thing, that He can provide, that He's good. You know, biblical faith sees all the options of joy in this life and says, God is the best. None can compare with Him. C.S. Lewis said it well. He who has God in everything has no more than he who has God alone. You know, the problem with the Israelites and us, you know, the Israelites thought, okay, yes, we're delivered from Egypt, but we also need to have the onions we had back then. We also need to make sure we have water source 24-7. We can't really trust you. We all, we also, God's not enough is basically what the Israelites were saying. And the problem is true for us. We think, well, yes, what we have is good, but we also need fill in the blank whatever it is for you. And yet here, faith is the radical faith that because of Christ, we never need anything else. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And that is enough. And this unbelief needs to be rooted out. We need to get the truths that are in our head and bring them down to our heart, so to speak. You know, it's easy to say, yes, God's in control. We can all say that in here. But sometimes our like suffocating anxiety reveals that our heart really doesn't believe that or our lips can say yes god's all i need and yet our depression because we think we're unattractive or we don't have a boyfriend or we're not athletic or whatever you think is a big deal reveals that you don't think god is enough but here says we have to fight that type of unbelief that leads us to fall away from the living God. And the problem is a lot of Christians go, well, that's not, you know, that's not going to happen. But 1 Corinthians 10, talking about the Israelites, says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And it's saying that in the context of all of what the Israelites did in the wilderness. You know, this is a warning to them and us. And one of Satan's biggest tactics is to get us to go, you know what, what he or the Bible or the pastor or Sunday school teacher or Bible study is saying, that applies to other people. That couldn't really happen to me and my family. You know, other people deal with that, but I'm immune. And yet we should take heed that we also don't fall. And so we need, it says here, to encourage or exhort one another to keep having a heart of faith. Now again, tie it back to last week. Who is to do this? Well, he's not talking to the church leaders. This is a letter written to the whole church. They all are to do this. And when, just now the point of our question, when does he say to do this? Daily. What? Daily. You could stop as soon as it's no longer today. So when is that? I think it's that. 
you know, we can be at 11.59 and 59 seconds. And tomorrow, what would have come? Because we, we're right there. But nonetheless, tomorrow is just a second away. But then, a second later, that was yesterday and we're today. still today. You're never outside of today. So when should we be exhorting and encouraging everyone? Every day. Now, I don't think that literally means, oh, about to go to bed. I haven't talked to anyone today. i got to call someone up or send a text. The point is not so much every single day you have to check this off the list, but it's a lifestyle of exhorting, encouraging, being purposeful in other people's life that it never stops. And we can never reach a point where we go, okay, I'm good or they're good. So if someone makes a profession of faith, we don't go, okay, job done. My kid's been baptized. I don't really need to worry about this anymore. Oh, you know, I, I really worked with my neighbor. Now they're saved. I'm done. Or, you know, they've been a Christian for years. We don't need to worry about them. They're good. I'll focus on these others. No, every person should be exhorting and needing exhortation and encouragement every day. And so, you know, we need to realize this because we can be doing great for a long time. And yet we're all prone to fall. I mean, look even in the Bible, how many good kings were there for years? King David, great king for years, and then in the latter part, had issues. Or King Solomon started out great, then fell away. King Hezekiah was great, and then his pride. So we can't go, you know, that person is a leader. They've been mature for years. We don't need to worry about them. You know, we never reach a point where we can say they're beyond needing help. And so I think this reminds us that if we're to be followers of Christ, to know and obey Him, this means that we have to be involved in relationships. That we're involved in more than a personal relationship with Him. You know, we're called to a close-knit community that's actively involved with each other. Now, one of the problems, challenges, we might say, might be a better word, is that we live in a consumer culture. What's a consumer Yeah, a consumer is someone who takes. And if you're in a buying process with a store, most stores' motto is, in regards to the customer in the store, customer's always right. Drove me nuts when I worked for a grocery store and people you could tell were ripping you off and the manager would say, customer's always right. You know, because it's all about the consumer. We want to make, let them have a good experience, good feel. And so this has bled over into the church. So it's all about Hey, we want to give you all this stuff so you come and you have you put your kids in this and you do this and you do this. And on one level, there's nothing wrong with all that. But in our minds, subtly, we even without thinking about it, we go, oh, I come to church to consume. I do this, I do this, I do this, and I leave. And yet here in other scriptures, we see, no, we're come to provide. We are come, should come to provide, not just consume. Now turn just a few pages. To Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Often quoted verses, at least part of it. But I think we often miss the right emphasis. Olivia, could you read that for us? Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. So what's the main thrust? Not as what's the main emphasis normally. What's the main thrust of that passage? Encourage one another. Now often what is made the main thrust of that passage? Yeah. 
Go to church. Don't neglect. But why? Okay, so that's in there. I'm not denying that. But why is that in there? Why are we not to neglect? Because there's a bigger purpose for why you're not to neglect meeting. Yeah. I mean, this was definitely in a day where you had to meet. Now, you know, maybe you could say you could encourage some people without physically being there. But by and large, still today, you have to be with someone to encourage them. You know, I can't sit on my couch and Chris on his couch and I can't go, mm, Chris, feel better. Uh, oh, he got it. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be with you to encourage you and exhort you to good works. It even ends with that. But encouraging one another all the more. So, yes, we should gather. But the point is for a purpose. It's like saying, hey, you got to the game in a uniform. Great. Well, now you have to play the game. Like, that's only the first part is getting here in your uniform. That, yes, we want that, but then we want you not just to stand on the field while I'm here. You know, you want me to do something while I'm here? <laughs> you didn't say that. No, when we come to church, we should be coming not just to be here. Check. No, but we should come. Who can I encourage? Who can I exhort? Who can I push along? So, if we go back to 3.13 says us we must be exhorting each other because sin deceives us and hardens us. You know, for most of us, sin doesn't come and say, hey, I want to ruin your life and I'm a big fat lie. Because then we go, well, I'm not going to do that. Sin comes seductively. It comes, Satan is an angel of light. It comes saying, hey, this is going to be great. This is going to make your life better. And we need other Christians to go, well, hold on. Let me show you how that's a lie. Let me remind you that the path you're pursuing is actually not light. That's darkness. And so we all need these reminders. And notice what we need to be reminded of is not just doctrinal facts, though we do need to be reminded of that. We need to know, well, how does that apply in our lives? Hearing the truth so that Christ is still seen as superior. You know, that our, the truth that our meaning, our value is not necessarily in our looks, or having a relationship, or being popular. But what values is what God thinks. Not all the ways we evaluate ourselves here. Alright, so, backing up, asking some questions. Why can edifying not be limited to Sunday morning? Yeah, why can't it? Because all of our life is just the Lord. And if we're called to encourage one another as long as it's called today, then that's Sunday and every other day. Okay. Right, so that, yeah, that's a good answer. What are some other, maybe even very just tangible, practical things of life, why it can't just be Sunday morning? Yeah. I don't really have a hard time on Sunday morning. <laughs> and on the opposite end of that, as you know, a lot of people come to church on Sunday morning, you know, and you you even if you're having a hard time, you might try to put on your best face when you come and so maybe then it looks like you don't need education when really you do. Yeah. You know, I think 
on one level, it's loving for people come in your house to shove all the junk in the closet and act like you don't have it. On another hand, you know, we, we sometimes are so programmed that we can all come looking nice. We all got it together. And we need to more be like, hey, you know, sometimes life is, we just all ate cheese whiz out of a can on the way to church so we could not be starving or whatever. You know, we, we're just, we're here, but that's about it right now, you know, or whatever the case may be. Um, now, how is the unbelief described here in Hebrews 3 maybe different than the way we often talk about unbelief? If we talk about an unbeliever, what are we normally referring to? Okay, and what would we be saying about their unbelief? Okay, but I'm sorry. What are they not believing? Might be a better way to ask the question. Yeah, or maybe they believe God exists, but they need to believe that. Yeah, the gospel. They don't believe the gospel. Well, what is kind of belief is he talking about here in Hebrews three? Probably the unbelief that God is not sufficient. God is not enough because, you know, like you said a second ago, sin comes very seductively. It kind of comes in. It looks good. Yeah. It doubts. I think it's a lot deeper than that. It's totally yeah. an abandonment of God. Okay. Totally disregard. There is no living God. You think that's what's being described here in Hebrews 3? But in that, you're still saying he exists, though. Because, like, I could be mad at Sarah and say, I don't want anything to do with you right now, but I still believe she exists. Can, in Ephesians, can, is it possible for a believer to move away? If it were possible, it's not possible. But there's that, there's that option in there. I'm just going to forget you. Can you really do that? But I'm just not going to deal with you at all. You're out of my life. Yeah, I don't think he's talking in regards to salvation here in Hebrews 3. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yes, obviously, deny 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize he is talking to Christians. And that, you know, one way the Bible describes our sin is unbelief. Not just, okay, well, there's those unbelievers out there, but unbelief can still reside in here. Again, not intellectually, but volitionally and willfully. Um, now, these are just some questions to reflect on. You don't need to answer these. You know, but when we gather together, what is your goal? Is your goal to consume or to give? Or when you talk with your friends, you don't have to answer out loud. Uh, you know, if someone watched your conversations, could they say there's anything distinctly Christian about them? Or is that something you just talk about on Sundays? You know, are you involved with other Christians on a regular basis seeking to talk about how they're doing? And I don't mean like one of them lying on a couch type of thing, conversation. Um, but things to think about, because I think that's what this passage is pointing us towards. But let's look at the last question for this topic. And that is, how do we edify? And you may remember from last week, Colossians 3.16. So let's turn there. And this is talking to all believers. And Arnaldo, could you read that for us when you get there? So if faith is not just that God exists, but God is the greatest object in our life, then as we see here, we do that by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly through teaching and admonishing one another. Now, that doesn't mean every time you get together with someone, you have to teach them something or admonish them in some way. Uh, nor is what we're saying meaning you can't just enjoy with even another believer God's good gifts of fellowship, food, fun. We're not saying that. But it does mean that our relationship should have a sense of intentionality or deliberateness about them. You know, that we're actively seeking to do other people good, even spiritual good. And thus, you know, one of the biggest how-tos is just to realize that we need relationships. You know, at our last church, there was this elderly man. He would sit in the back uh, side note, he and another old man would often whisper, <laughs> and you could hear him about five rows up. But nonetheless, that's a whole other story. Um, as soon as the pastor ended and we would start singing the last song, he would get up. There's a hallway on the side. He'd go out and leave. And he never came to anything else. So I was trying to get to know him. So finally, I just started getting up during the last song, too, and going out and talking to him. <laughs> and one time I said something like, hey, could we go grab a meal or get coffee or come by your house and visit? And he kind of barked at me, what do you want from me? And I just kind of said, well, you know, you're part of the church. I just want to get to know you. And he kind of and went off. And um, we didn't see him for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, he wasn't really involved with anyone in the church that much. So we didn't know. And then finally, we kind of heard he was in the hospital. So I went to visit him. And when I was there, his face lit up and he apologized. I said, I, you know, I feel so horrible about the way I interacted with you. And we had a wonderful conversation. And he was a really godly man and knew scripture. And he just, you know, every, he was really looking forward to going to heaven. And it was wonderful. Um, but not too long after that, he ended up passing away. 
And I thought it was really sad. Here's this elderly man who loved God's Word. He knew Scripture. And yet he lived all by himself. You know, he would have been a blessing to so many people in the church if he would have been intentional even to eat a meal with them. But for his mindset, even though he knew Scripture, even though he was in many ways godly and longed to be with God, his idea of what a Christian life looked like had nothing to do with being involved with others. It was, I show up on Sunday, I go to service, and then I go home. And yet, though many Christians wouldn't maybe be that extreme, maybe wouldn't leave during the last song, <laughs> I don't think we're all that different from him. You know, their idea of what a, the Christian life looks like has little to do with other people. It's about believing the right things, leading a basically moral life, and then going to church. That's what a good Christian does. And now I'm not denying that you should do those things, but I think the New Testament calls us to more, and that is intentional relationships with others. You know, that we should be engaged with others. You know, this is discipleship. You know, I, I love doctrine, theology. Let's talk about those things. Get out my little sword, fight with people. But though we need to teach those things, the reality is a lot of life is caught more than taught. I don't know if you remember my friends, Joshua and Naomi Smith. They were the missionaries to Spain and now Mexico. They came in February, I believe. I don't know if you remember, but while they were here, they said the greatest fruit of their ministry has come from you remember? Eating meals with people, they said. Now, they've been, uh, I don't know, almost 20 years involved in full-time missionary work. Um, and they said that was the greatest fruit of their ministry. Uh, Sarah and I were helped with a college ministry when I was in seminary. And one of the young men wrote this email. And I don't say this, but like, we did everything right. But just kind of make the point. He said, while I've been attending, I've been made aware of the impact being part of community can have on an individual's faith. I believe the key factor here was scheduling lunches after church on Sundays, as well as other various activities throughout the week. This allowed me to have an active relationship with the members of our group and observe them living out the Bible on a daily basis. If I would have just attended church on Sunday, I would have not developed nearly, if any, relationships to provide the necessary positive influences. And again, his point was that Sunday morning was good, not denying that. But the relationships throughout the week allowed him to see, well, what does this actually look like? Several years ago, I read a really fascinating book, a little bit of a hard read, but it was called Addiction and Virtue by author Kent Dunnington. And in it, he is trying to wrestle with why do we have addictions and all these things. But nonetheless, one part, he wrestles with why AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and other such groups have been so successful, at least in getting people to stop being addicted. And he looks at one aspect, and that's what he calls friendship. And he writes, the 12-step movement, that's kind of a synonym for AA, is skilled at friendship because it demands that it member, its members enter into certain kinds of relationships that are structured toward a particular end. And he goes on to show how in AA, when you join, if you're new, you're a novice, and they put you with a sponsor, and you never lose your sponsor. They say, AA says, it is easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than to think yourself into a new way of acting. One person said, I learned how to be a good AA member by watching good AA members and doing what they do. You know, the point is that they are intentionally put into relationships where one helps 
other people. That's very much what the New Testament is talking about in regards to discipleship. Now let me just quote one other thing from Dunnington. He says, the church, he's a believer, so he's writing from that perspective. He says, the church fails to lead people to long-term change when it thinks that people grow by learning abstract doctrinal truths at church, whereas being friends is related to having common interests or hobbies and done personally. This thinking is the opposite of the Bible's understanding of friendship. For the Bible sees friendships of accountability and training as central to growth and holiness. Discipleship relationships in the church shouldn't be something one has to seek, but rather so prevalent that people have to intentionally avoid them. Now, let me pause and say at this point, I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood, because some of you might be thinking, oh great, my life is already so full. There's no way I could fit something else into my life. Or, some of you might think, well, what would I teach or train anyone? And yet, both of those thoughts, I think, are buying into the wrong view of what discipleship is. You know, we often think of discipleship as an event-oriented, you've got to learn this truth approach to growth. And, okay, we do need events. We do need to learn truths. I'm not denying either of those. However, I would say, Discipleship is more folding people already into what's going on in your life rather than creating a new event. You know, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, we have teaching times in Sunday school, in the sermon, Wednesday night, women's and women's studies. You don't have to do something else. You could just say, hey, let's get together and think about how we could play this out in our life. Or... You might be purposeful. I'm going to show up earlier. I'm going to stay later. I'm going to be more intentional to engage people. Now, if you're as religious as I am, I eat 21 times a week. Don't miss a one. You could just say, do you want to eat with me? Because you're going to eat. At least I am. I'm not going to miss one. Uh, they're going to eat. Well, rather than you eating over here and them eating over here, why don't you eat here? You don't even have to buy something. Hey, you bring your sack lunch. I'll bring my sack lunch. Let's eat together. Let's be purposeful. Or you probably already watch movies and play games. You don't need to set up a new event. Just say, hey, we're going to do this. You want to join us? And they might say no. Okay, fine. But being deliberate to fold people into our lives rather than thinking we have to create this new thing. It's often in the day-to-day life where people grow. Now, it might be helpful to start a new study. That might be a good thing to do. I'm not trying to say you can't do that. But it might be better just to use some of the things that are going on. Or you could do something as simple as, hey, can I just come over? I'll help you fold laundry and we'll talk. Probably a lot of people might love that. Or some people might, no, I don't want anyone to see my laundry. We can do something else. I'm not one of those people. Okay. okay. <laughs> but... How can we do people good? How can we engage them? Um, as well, another misconception is, well, what this is calling is, is for us to be extroverts. Well, I don't think this is calling us to be extroverts at all. You know, God can use introverts or extroverts. You know, the point is not that you're a certain personality type, but how do you use the personality type God's given you to love other people. I mean, that's another way to describe all this. This is just basically trying to apply God's command of loving one another. Now, you don't have to be 100 people over throwing a big party. It might just be you going over and talking to a neighbor or you seeing the other introvert in the class who walks in and tries not to look at anyone and 
than just going over and go, hi, I'm trying not to talk to anyone either. And then you can sit there and not talk to each other together. And then you both feel more comfortable that there's someone else like you who doesn't have to talk to anyone. And the two of you can bond in your introvertedness together. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. There's another kid at our CC campus this year who has panic attack like Carter. And they used to go sit outside when they were going to play kickball. And they would both stand against the wall having a panic attack together. But they never talked about it. It was really cool. There you go. <laughs> you know, God doesn't say this. There's one great command. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Except introverts. <laughs> Don't worry. This one didn't apply to you. No, we're all called to this with the personality God has given us. Uh, and fourth, it may be something completely different than anything I've said. <laughs> you know, How do you do this? Well, I don't know. You live a unique life. Every one of us has a different life and it might look different for a college student than for someone who's retired. Then it might look for a parent. You know, in our church we have single parents and parents, homes with both parents. We have homes where some people are working a lot. We have some where both parents work. We have some where it's going to look different in every home. So there's not one how-to. This is how everyone in our church should be doing discipleship. Now, there's multiple ways, and I, you might be thinking, none of the things you said would work in my life. Well, good. Well, be creative. Think of how you can apply God's Word in the context of your life. Um, and in this, we'll end with this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We have to be wise to realize there's not just one thing we have to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Sarah, could you read that for us? It's in the New Testament. I'm just teasing. I know. Uh, so how many types of people are described there? Seven. <laughs> All right, what were those seven, Arnold? Unruly. Okay, there's one. Feeble-minded. Two. Weak. Three. Absent-minded. <laughs> three. I uh, three. I uh, so there. Your version is a little different. Mine are idle, faint-hearted, weak. So, do you do the same thing for each person? No. No. Yeah, so there's not a one-size-fits-all, well, this is how I help people. Well, sorry, I can't help you. You're not the type of person I help. No, we have to go, well, maybe this person is doing what they're doing because they are idle. Sometimes it's sin, and we need to admonish them. Hey, <coughs> what you're doing is not right, but maybe they're not sinful. Maybe they're faint-hearted. Maybe they don't have courage at all. They know what to do, but they just can't get the strength. And so we need to come along them and encourage them. Or it might be that they're weak. You know, there's all these different things. So we need to be involved enough, though, to know well, what's really going on. From a distance, we won't know. Again, pushing us to relationships. All right, so backing up and reflecting on this, what would be some ways you think we could edify and this could be group could be individual don't 
have a set goal in the answering of that question. What are tangible ways that we can be about the business of edifying others? Okay, that could be a very tangible one. I mean, that, one thing as I said was we don't need to reinvent the wheel. And back to Hebrews 10, since we're wanting to encourage each other, what is one way, we, one thing we need to do? Okay, we need to speak, but Hebrews 10, we need to... Not neglect the gathering together. Again, the point there is not, okay, you got to show up, got to show up. So, hey, we have these structures in place. Take advantage of what's here. And so the women's Bible study could be, it might not work for everyone, all the women, but it could be a great way to encourage. All right, what might be other things? We don't need to list the other activities our church has. <laughs> okay, that... That could be a great opportunity. I have actually, there are three different people, they've all moved away now, that have come to church, have been, they showed up at my house on a Friday, I didn't know them, and then they ended up coming to church. Wendy, Kate, and Susanna, but she didn't come regularly. Yeah. There's a very good way to live it out. Time where you're, I mean, I, normally for women and children so I don't go but uh, time where hanging out talking about life seeing how life is what might be other tangible ways Yeah, I mean, I don't, I hope no one ever thinks we're attendance police, but, you know, if, if it was breakfast and you didn't show up, and you normally showed up, hopefully your family would go, where are they? And they wouldn't just go, eh, they're not here, let's go and eat. Well, we're together, if people aren't here, without being attendance police, go, oh, so-and-so's not here, missed you this morning. Are you okay? You know, let them... Know what's going on. Some way we can help. And it's a great way to use technology. So it'd be purposeful to look around. Goes someone not here? What's going on in their life? What can we do to? You know, I, I agree with Dunnington, and I quoted him earlier that he says discipleship relationships in the church shouldn't be something one has to seek out, but rather so prevalent that one has to intentionally avoid them. Uh, what would we need to do to kind of create that culture where it wouldn't be abnormal like my friend who like why would you want to go get a meal <laughs> well you know cultures where things are normal you don't even question them anymore what would we need to do what kind of lives would we need to lead, lead so that would not be what why would you did I do something you're going to talk you're going to lay into me pastor what did I do <laughs> Okay. 
prompt me is, you know, once every six months, because I'm the next family, you know, bigger churches I think of, I'm the next family on your list that you need to, you know, you try to have lunch or whatever with one family a month from the church, but you don't talk to me the other five months, well, then I might think, I wonder what's wrong. <laughs> yeah, we have friends who are at a church, and they were over there for dinner, and one of the, uh, sorry, they went to another member's house, and one of the kids said, yeah, we're going through the directory and having everyone over for dinner, which is not a bad thing, no, except, like what you yeah. said, they never talked to them again. Right. It was very much a, well, this is what a godly person does. All right, we've done everyone. Aren't we good? Because we had everyone over. Well, Start again. If you're not using that to build an actual relationship, and then the next week, oh, how, you know, how did whatever we talked about go or whatever? There's nothing wrong with being intentional and having a six Is weeks. Is one of you that was talking about the family that had somebody over every single night of the week to fellowship? Was that here? Oh, I don't know. That seems a little crazy to me. I but. think that might have been a practical. <laughs> but somebody was talking about this family and they had like a kid. And they didn't have time during the day and whatever, you know, to do stuff like that. And so every single night of the week they invited a different family over to join them for dinner. And they said, we sit down and eat dinner together. Why shouldn't we? somebody else over we're going to do it anyone anyway. but I just sounds exhausting to me but anyway, <laughs> I can't remember if you guys really were telling me about that well so I, I wouldn't I'm not encouraging y'all to do that just to no. be clear but I will say if you take this more as a this is normal life then it doesn't have to be as exhausting because what happens is what we say is we're having someone over so we need to fix a special meal the house needs to be perfectly in order we need to have all the nicer dishes out well, that's exhausting. But if it's just, hey, we're just going to make a little bit more of what we're already making. And it's it, just Joe coming over again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if it was your, if it was just you're fixing a meal and they're coming over, then it's not as is as exhausting. If they then chip in and help do the dishes, and so, you know. But nonetheless, you know, that might be a great opportunity for whoever to see parenting in action. How does a Christ-like parent deal with feet every night at the table? Because they're every night, I guess, so they get to see. What, what does this look like day in and day out? No, that's yeah. I mean, well, now I will admit I, you know, I can read and talk about these truths, but I'm not very intentional. I don't say this in any way to. Bo- I'm going to go and pause.